week we started a brand new sermon series on the book of Proverbs, but I spent most of the time last week just laying some groundwork as to how to read a book like Proverbs and trying to help us get our arms around what is a biblical definition of wisdom, not just what we might think according to the world. What's biblical wisdom look like? But then I promised you that today I would come back because it's important and unpack in much more detail. So how would I get wisdom? You got me excited, Brad. I think I need it. I think it's important. But how do I get wisdom in my life? So turn with me to Proverbs chapter 3 where we're going to answer that question today. How do you get it? Proverbs chapter 3. And as you're turning there, let me go ahead and do a little bit of instruction because I'm going to do something different today. For a while now, it just came into my head one Sunday. But for a while, when I finished reading the scripture, I've been saying the word of the Lord. And then I chose to tell you, and all God's people said, and that's very Baptist, amen. Actually, church tradition, I'm not saying there's a Bible verse for this, but the church tradition, and I'd like to do it this way, is that I say the word of the Lord, and you say, thanks be to God. So we're going to shift. I know this just, I get to say the same thing I've always said. You got to say something new. But I got to tell you, the first service got it. All right? So when I get done reading it, I'm going to say the word of the Lord, and you'll say, got it. Proverbs 3, beginning in verse 1. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands for length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart and so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and Men, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It'll be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver. Her gain than fine gold. She's more precious than rubies. And all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand. And in her left hand, riches and honor. Her ways are of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her and happy are all who retain her. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the depths were broken up and clouds dropped down their dew. My son, let them not depart from your eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion 
So they will be life to your soul and grace to your neck. Then you will walk safely in your way and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you'll not be afraid. Yes, you will lie down and your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror, nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. The word of the Lord. So from these verses, here's what I want to do today. I want to show you how to get up onto the path of wisdom. And I've chosen my words very carefully here. Because when you see the Bible and you read the Bible regarding wisdom, wisdom is never presented as a door. You never see the Bible talk that way. Oh, it's a door. And if you can find the door of wisdom and you got the key to unlock it, you're in. And you got wisdom. You never see the Bible talking that way. That's not how it's presented. It's always presented as a path. A path of wisdom. And I think what you're going to see today just might surprise you what is part of that path that leads to wisdom. Let's get started. Here's the first thing. You want wisdom? I do. Here's what you got to do. Number one, you'll need to commit to a lifetime of obedience by putting into practice God's word in your life, stay with me because this next clause is important, even when it doesn't line up with your own thinking. This is what gets you up onto a path of wisdom. Look at verses five and six again. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean, say it. Say it again. Not on your own understanding. In how many of your ways? All your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Now, I know those verses don't have the word Bible or scripture in them anywhere, but that's what he's talking about. Talking about God's word because he's saying that regardless of what you think you understand, regardless of what you feel and regardless of strong opinions that you may actually hold, The path of wisdom is found by following God's ways and submitting to God's will, especially in those areas that it's not what you would have thought or you feel or that the culture says we should be doing. See, stay with me a minute. Look at me. Selective obedience will never lead to wisdom. That's easy. That's easy. So don't don't pat yourself on the back and say, well, there's some of God's word that I'm obeying. Here's what we do. Picking and choosing a few areas that just so happen to line up with what you thought anyway. Can you find some things that like, yeah, I would have thought that too. That's easy. What about when it doesn't? His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. What about when it doesn't? See, That's when you're getting up onto the path of wisdom. When you are willing to submit, follow God's ways, submit to God's will in those areas that you're like, oh man, I would not have thought that. So let me ask you, 
anything come into your mind right now? Now, there's a question of ignorance. We're not even on that today. I'm asking you, is there an area of your life? It's not that you don't know what God's word says. You do. But you have yet to submit. You refuse to do God's way there. When you submit and you say yes, the path of wisdom is when, it's when regardless of what you're thinking, you're feeling, the culture is saying, what makes sense to you, you're like, you know what? I'm gonna do what God's word says here anyway, right here. See the Hebrew word for acknowledge in verse six, look at that word. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Hebrew word for acknowledge there in verse six. The mistake we make in English, right? You could think the word acknowledge means like, I acknowledge there's a God. Even Americans today are fond of saying, yeah, I believe in God. Acknowledge doesn't mean tip your hat towards and say, yeah, there he is. Ooh, the Hebrew word, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. So Proverbs was written in Hebrew. That Hebrew word for acknowledge is the word yada. And it means to come to know something intimately because you have experienced it personally. Personally. In other words, you know what God's word says and you choose to do what God's word says so that you begin to experience that in that area of your life. You don't need to ride on the coattails of anybody else telling you what it's like to trust and obey God in that area because you got your own story. So here's what happens. If you're in a church family long enough, you've heard people say, oh my goodness, we thought there was no way we could give away that amount of money and still make it. People have those stories, lots of them. That story could become your story when you step out on God's word, whether it's sexual purity or sexual identity or whatever it is, it's that area that you say, no way, no way, no way, no way. Yada is you begin to experience it personally and intimately. You know it because you have leaned into God's word and stepped out on it for yourself. When you do that, you are stepping up onto a path of wisdom. That's when he begins to direct your path and make your way straight. Not when you just pick and choose. There's some areas in my life that I'm doing what God's word says. That won't get you on a path of wisdom. And so make sure you understand regarding wisdom. We're going after wisdom here in this series. Wisdom. Just sitting around in the ivory tower and learning more and more and more and more of what God's word says will not automatically lead to wisdom. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 says knowledge, just gaining more knowledge, increasing knowledge, knowing your Bible, knowledge alone will actually puff you up and make you very arrogant, but it will not lead to wisdom. Wisdom is found when you, in all your ways, acknowledge yada, experience, because you trusted him. You stepped out on God's word, and ah, you're becoming more wise. There's some wisdom, there's some wisdom there's some wisdom. 
It's the same thing that James, the brother of Jesus, was driving home to us in James chapter one. Don't turn there for the sake of time, but James chapter one, beginning of verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Why would he add that? Because our human tendency is to deceive ourselves and think, if I'm hearing God's word, I'm hearing good teaching, I'm exposed to good teaching, I guess my life's gonna be blessed and I'll be wise and I'll be more like Jesus. That's not what the Bible teaches. And James goes on to say, gives us a wonderful metaphor of what God's word is. He actually says, when you hear it, but don't do it, you are like the man or woman who looks in a mirror, sees what you're like, and then turns and forgets and does not do anything about it. I mean, there were days that people didn't have mirrors We have mirrors today, usually, usually to make some adjustments, right? You don't look and say, oh yeah, bedhead, hideous, whatever. It is what it is. You make some changes, usually. Here's the thing about God's word. You don't read the Bible just to see and know more about God. Guess what? God's word shows you more about you. It's a mirror, And you see things about you that you would never have concluded or seen on your own. And it wasn't just for information. It was now to respond by God's grace and his power and his spirit to make some adjustments, even if it's not what you would have thought, even if it's not what you're feeling, even if it's certainly not what the culture is saying to you. And James concludes by saying, don't be a forgetful hearer, but a doer who acts. A doer who acts. Who acts? Verse 25, James 1. A doer who acts. He will be blessed in what he's doing. Let me ask you. Are you a doer who acts? You take action on God's word. You put it into practice. You think when you're reading or you're hearing, you're like, now, Lord, how would I apply that to my life? How would I work that into my life? Well, here's where my life is and here's what it says. Don't leave that alone. Don't leave the disconnect. Don't leave the gap. By your grace, what do I need to do? I want to put it into practice in my life. You see, in our culture, we tend to equate a fool with someone who's uneducated, ignorant. That is not a Hebrew concept of a fool. The Hebrew concept of a fool is someone who has God's truth and does nothing with it. So here's the thing that's scary. I am grateful that I'm, I'm in a church and the elders want me to actually teach the Bible. How much of it? In a day that a lot of churches don't, a lot of churches, it's bells and whistles and dog and pony show and stories. And we actually teach the Bible, all of it. But guess what? That means here in our church family, there is a higher chance, not less, that we could actually have fools because we try to teach God's word, his truth. So now you have it, you've heard it. If you don't do anything with it, that's the Hebrew definition of a fool. You've got his truth. You don't put it into practice. Jesus himself in Matthew 7, you might want to jot this down, it's extra It's not in your bulletin. Jesus tells that parable about a house built on the rock and house built on the sand. I've never gone off yet, and I don't want today to be the day. House built on the rock, house built on the sand. In the metaphors, that's your life. 
Everyone's building a life. Oh, same thing being driven home. He says both had the floods, both had the wind, both had the storm. But here's what sometimes people don't realize. Both heard God's word. It doesn't say, oh, this, this person wasn't in a good church and didn't even know what God's word says. Both heard God's word. Which one is the one built on the rock? Which one stood in the storm? What's the distinguishing characteristic? The house on the rock heard it and put it into practice, the NIV says. Put it into practice. Folks, putting God's word into practice is not optional. It's not like, well, now I've heard it. Maybe I'll do that. Maybe I won't. If you don't, you are the very definition of a fool. And don't expect to be blessed and say, well, my life ought to... No, not if you're not putting it into practice. Every day, you and I are becoming someone. Either wise or foolish. And it really has very little to do with book learning and everything to do with the choices and actions. Choices and actions every day that we, that we, that we make in our own lives. You're either becoming more foolish or you're becoming more wise. It's our choices. Because who we, are be- who we are becoming has so much more to do with what we choose to do. Don't tell me what you say you believe. Tons of people have a theology that's their written theology that they wave around. What you do, that's what you actually believe. Don't tell me what you believe. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? It's what we choose to do that shapes us. What are you choosing to do? And who are you becoming? What are you choosing to do? Who are you becoming? And and even as we think in terms of decisions you have to make every day, don't make this mistake. In the course of a lifetime, you might have a half dozen unbelievable, big, dramatic events or turning points. I would actually propose to you, those are not the biggest factors in shaping who you are at the end of your life. It's not the big dramatic events or turning points that ultimately make you who you are. It's the daily routine of actions and choices, month after month, year after year, over the course of a lifetime that makes you who you are. You are. And here's what's tricky. So much of all of it can seem so insignificant and uneventful at the moment. Get this. Wisdom and character are forged in the mundane and daily routines of life. Don't be sloppy there. Don't be careless there. Wisdom and character are forged in the mundane and daily routines of life. And so now, since we're talking about obedience, let me point out two different ways that the Bible brings us to a point of obedience that would enable us to get up onto a path of wisdom. One I'm gonna call the simple use of God's word, and the other I'm gonna call the big story narrative use of God's word. Let's start with simple use because it is just like it sounds, pretty simple. Not always easy, but simple. And what I mean by the simple use of God's word is you're reading God's word and there are direct commands. They're not complicated. Direct commands about what to do or not do in a certain area. 
Simple. It's clear. It might not be easy, might not be what you thought, but it's not complicated. And so here's, here's, how you need to, here's how you need to respond. You don't need to pray about it. Let me give you an example of simple use of God's word. If you're here and you're single, then God's word today, 2018, hasn't been edited. There's no footnotes. God, God hasn't, we haven't downloaded a different version because today's so different, Pastor Brad. God's word says that you should not be sexually intimate with anyone. Oh, but we love each other. Doesn't matter. We're getting married anyway. Doesn't matter. Oh, everybody does this. Everybody sleeps together. Everybody moves in together before they're married. Doesn't matter. God's word hasn't changed. Simple use. So here's the deal. You don't need to pray about it. Let me pray about that. Why don't you shut up and obey? Oh, let me get counsel from others. Here's what I watch people do as a pastor. If you go around and ask enough people what they think about your decision, can you find someone to eventually tell you what you want to hear and what you wanted to do anyway? You're not seeking counsel. You're seeking affirmation for your foolish, hard heart, and you'll find it. You'll find it. You don't need to pray about it. You don't need to seek further counsel. You don't need to think hard about it. You need to submit. Not because God's a killjoy. Is God against sex? No. He thought of it. He's a good God. He's the best dad. And then he said, oh, this is wonderful, but it's wonderful in this context. A committed relationship called marriage. Marriage. And outside of that, it does not honor God. And here, stay with me. Nor is it good for you. It's destructive to you. He's a good God. If you're here and you're married, simple use of God's word. God's word says you should not be sexually intimate with anybody other than your spouse. Oh, but I didn't see this coming. We have connected in ways that I've never even felt for my spouse. Doesn't matter. Oh, we never should have gotten married. I've heard this till I want to throw up. Everybody who wants to commit adultery or unbiblically divorce their spouse loves to tell me, without exception, we never should have gotten married. I never loved her to begin with. Please stop. Simple use of God's word. This is your spouse. No sex outside of with them. And very often when that isn't great, it's indicative of other problems. Sex is rarely the problem and almost always the first casualty. So don't, don't go find sex with somebody else. Figure out what's up with your marriage relationship and ask God for the grace to address it. Simple use of God's word. But now let me talk to you a minute about the big story narrative use. And here's where I really get excited because this gives me a chance to thump something I thump all the time. Here's what's going on. Let me make a connection for you. Big story narrative use of God's word is what I mean when I keep pushing you to read the Bible. How much of it? All of it. Not just once you can check the box and say, did that. There was a year I did that. Boom. I mean... Over and over and over and over. Because here's what starts to happen, my friends. Here's the effect of that. Reading all of God's word over and over can put you up on a path of wisdom because it begins to shape your thinking to be more like his 
thinking, and it can even begin to give you desires that you never had before because you begin to have big categories and themes framed up in your life for how to view life. We actually don't just need specific answers to specific problems. We do. But I do believe now, after being a pastor for 31 years and being a believer myself since I was seven, there's something I need more. I need bigger categories to have my life framed up by bigger categories so that I'm viewing all of life through a different lens. Because here's what you find. You come up to what he specifically says about a specific situation. What's the problem? I don't want to do it. But I don't want to do it. And some of you... I hope this might help you. You think, what is wrong? I know what God's word says about giving away lots of money. I don't want to do it. I know what God's word says about forgiving my sister-in-law, but she really hurt me. I don't want to do it. I know what God's, I could just go on and on and on. Why don't you want to do it? Don't hear me saying, oh man, there's a secret to where you'll just, I still have the flesh too that says, oh, you might need that. You got five kids, lots of college. You need that, you need that. There's still the flesh, but it is not as hard to obey specific commands of the Lord when you are also having life framed up with bigger categories. That's what begins to happen. You say, what are you talking about, Brad? I'm talking about when you read the Bible, all of it. When you read the Bible, the big story, there is a big story. There is a big story going on here. Some of you still treat your Bible like the Honda owner's manual in your glove box. When I got a problem, whip it out. How do you change the brake light bulb? Oh, and then Google also is like, oh, the other man is saying. Do. But you treat God's word like when I have a problem, I'll pull it out for specific answers. And then I put it away until I have another problem. Usually you'll just have lots of problems. Lots of them. There's something missing in your life. And I know some parts of the Bible are harder than others. Yes, even for me, some parts are harder to chew and swallow. But it's like seven grain bread, right? We all know you shouldn't be eating that white bread that we all ate as kids. It's globbing your colon. If you're still doing that, stop. But, you know, we're all into seven grain bread now. Ezekiel bread. I'm chewing this, and I think that's a stick. I think that's a rock. But oh my goodness, this is good for me. It's going to be like a Brillo pad moving through. We're going to have a colon cleanse here. Nothing stays within me. It's all going out. Oh, this is good. God's word is seven grain bread. He knows what we need. And it's put together that you need all of it. All of it. To begin to have the big themes and categories like... You begin to read the Bible, all of it. You begin to see this big category and theme of sin and man's brokenness from the very beginning, Genesis 3, that's ugly and dark and confusing and filled with suffering and death. But when you read God's word, you begin to see in contrast to modern psychology that says we're basically good and we can't figure out why people keep murdering other people and doing heinous stuff. You won't be as confused. When you read God's word, you'll see we're basically really, really, really bad. Tell your friend we're bad, bad. I don't mean Michael Jackson kind of bad either, bad. It's like, People do heinous stuff and you don't, you know, on the news you see them just saying, how could anybody read your Bible? That's how. 
That's how bad we are. Sin, depravity, dark, ugly. When you read all your Bible, you see a theme of God's glory and God's sovereignty over all of history. All of it. Oh, so that everything leading up to where we are and everything ahead of us now is all a part, is captured by God's purpose and glory so that while it may feel or seem like no one's in control or at the helm, God rules, always has, does now, always will. And that'll change how you respond to things. When you read all the Bible, you see a theme of restoration and redemption of everything in the world, from human beings to political structures to the very creation itself that Romans 8 says right now is groaning, groaning. When you read all your Bible, you see a theme of living loose to the things of the world. How could you do that? Because you've got a bigger category being framed up of eternity that begins to cause you to see each moment as what it really is, a moment that this life now is a vapor. There'll still be some struggle, trust me, but it won't be as hard to let go of your money. It won't be as hard to forgive someone. It won't be as hard to keep from hating unbelievers. Your whole life is being framed up with bigger categories, bigger themes. And when you read all your Bible, you see how God uses incredibly messed up people. That's the only kind you got in the Bible. It's glorious. It's so encouraging because then you begin to say, oh my goodness, there's a chance he might actually use me to be a part of his purposes and glories because he's never been looking for people without problems. Everybody here is messed up and yet he somehow uses them as a part of his bigger plan. And when you read all the Bible, you see the theme of Jesus who was in the beginning with God but took on flesh and came to be with us. And is preparing a place for us. And is coming back as our bridegroom. And you realize, I've got a home. I've got someone who loves me. And it changes. Bigger categories change how you respond to those everyday moments and situations. And it enables you to more easily lean into God's word and put it into practice. Yes, simple use, but big story, narrative of God's word. Number two, let me give you a second way you can get up onto the path of wisdom. So you gotta commit to a lifetime, not a little short sprint. I'm gonna obey God for like two years and then ride on that. No, lifetime of obedience, putting it into practice, especially in those areas that that's not what I would think. Let me give you a second one. You've got to admit that you need a relationship with God and other people far more than you just need a list of rules or biblical principles. We are so American. We're so individualistic. We would love for it to be me and my Bible. And I don't need anybody else. They'll just slow me down. Oh my goodness, look at verse seven. Look at verse seven of Proverbs three. Do not be wise in your own eyes. What's going on here? Remember last week I gave you a definition of simpleton and a definition of fool? And the fool is the person that says, I don't need any counsel from anybody else. I know what I think. I know what I want. And they'll just slow me down. Folks, you will move slower. 
When you choose to build relationships and friendships and get counsel and say, I need to be mentored, I'm going to find somebody else ahead of me, somebody who's already gone through some of this. I'm going to ask good questions. Yes, it'll slow you down. But the goal is not to just get where you think you want to go. The goal is to make wise decisions along the way and then make a really wise one when you get there. And you're more likely to do that in connection with other believers at close range where you invite counsel and advice. Again, I'm not saying go get advice on the simple use of God's word. Now I'm talking about those decisions where we don't have a verse that says one way or another, right? Oh man, we need each other. The wise person seeks counsel, cultivates friendship, looks for advisors, and that all happens best in the context of relationships. See, the Bible was never meant to replace your relationship with God and other people. It was meant to enhance your relationship with God and other people. When you read the New Testament, you see all these one another commands. One another, one another, one another, one another. God designed the Christian life that we actually need each other. And when you see all the one another commands, you realize this path of wisdom that God designed for us is wide enough that he intended for us to make this journey together with other believers. You're not wise when you live in isolation and say, I know, I know, I know, I know. We need each. That's why our church family pushes small groups the way we do. Because we actually need people to speak into our lives. We need people at times to confront us. We need people to comfort us and hold on to us and pray for us. And that all happens best at close range. Oh, you can get wicked smart by reading the Bible all by yourself but you will not get wisdom. That's found in the context of relationships with others who are also going hard after God and want to please him. It was C.S. Lewis who said, the next best thing to being wise, oneself, is to live in a circle of those who are. And this man was brilliant, folks. Brilliant scholar. And yet he highly valued friendship and relationships with other believers and conversation and iron sharpening iron. Let me give you a third way to get up on the path. Number three, you'll need to submit to the crucible of suffering that actually happens outside of the academic classroom of knowledge. Look at verses 11 and 12 again. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Now, right here is the wisdom factor and the part of this path that we struggle with the most, is it not? Oh, we just think, what? What? Because so much, here's where we feel a big disconnect, and here's what can be misleading. Because so much of the book of Proverbs makes a connection between wisdom and favor with God and man. Wisdom and wealth. Wisdom and health. Wisdom and long life. Yes, yes, yes. And you see it all in our chapter. We could walk back through it again. But what we need to realize is that there also is a clear, clear basis in all of God's word that trials and suffering are a huge part 
of what will shape us to be more like Christ, shape us to be less foolish and more wise, shape us to know him and depend on him and love him. And don't make a mistake here. Not because God is mad at us. It's not that God is mad at us. Look at verse 12 again. What is God's posture towards us as his children, his sons and daughters? What's his posture? What do you see in verse 12? He loves us and he delights in us. Wow. But that love for us and that delight in us does not translate into a hurt-free, pain-free, easy life. Because that would lead to a life largely devoid of wisdom. And we wish it was different. We wish that this was not part of the wisdom path. See, we have no problem with favor in the sight of God and man. Bring it. We have no problem with health. Yes. We have no problem with money and abundance. Yes. Suffering and trials that he uses to train us and discipline as, as his children. Here is where there is a huge temptation to jump from the path of wisdom and reject what God is doing in our lives. I want you to note two strong Hebrew verbs that are found in this passage. Verse 11, look at the word despise. Do not despise All that word despise in Hebrew means to completely reject something and to do it with an attitude of contempt. You know what contempt is? I take the high ground, I have a superior thought, and I look down and say, how could you? I deserve better. How could you? This shouldn't be happening in my life. Despise. You reject it with an attitude of contempt What in the world? This shouldn't be happening to me. And the word detest in the Hebrew is a word that conveys deep emotion or disgust or sickening dread. Now let's be honest. Are those not some of our first emotions that erupt when you land in the midst of trials and suffering? Sickening dread, a temptation to say, what? Especially if you're watching Christian television Big problem here. The Bible doesn't teach that you will be preserved and everything will go well. Joel Osteen teaches that. And he's wrong. He's wrong. Our father says he's going to allow and even bring some trials and suffering into our lives. Because this is what shapes us so often and gives us greater wisdom and makes us more like Christ and causes us to release the things of this world and causes us to be totally dependent on him and cry out to him as if our lives depend on him because they always did. But now we start to know it. Some of those things are best accomplished in heat and furnace and trouble and hard And so Proverbs 3 is saying, oh, when, when you're on the path, and here's what's hard, you can find yourself saying, but I was putting God's word into practice. I was in a small group. I'm connected at close range. I'm trying to be humble. I'm letting people speak into my lives. Don't make the mistake in saying, and therefore nothing hard should happen to me. Different analogy, John 15, where he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you read that, you'll see the branch that produces fruit isn't left alone. 
he still prunes it that it might produce even more. We tend to think, oh my goodness, nothing hard should happen to me because I'm seeking to be that believer. And he's not, don't make this, he's not punishing you. He's not mad at you. But he is committed as a good dad who loves us and delights in us. And the father wants to see us be all that we can be. Be more Christ-like, have more wisdom, make greater impact. God understands something about us that we're so slow to accept. That pain and suffering are often what shake us to let go of the things of the world and awaken us to the things of God and refine us for the purposes of God. That's why C.S. Lewis again said, God speaks to us in our pleasures. I'm sorry, whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, don't make the mistake here of of, of assuming either, oh, so if I'm going through trials and suffering, I'm automatically going to get more wise. You have the opportunity. Suffering and trials turbocharge the potential for gaining wisdom. You can be on the fast track for gaining wisdom. But if you detest it, If you despise it, it'll just push you further down a path of foolishness. But here's what I want you to understand. If you're his child, if you despise it and you detest it, you will waste it and have to repeat it. I don't know about you. I'm not looking to repeat more than necessary anything hard. Because this good dad is committed. There's a verse that we find great comfort in that says... and we're confident in this very thing, Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ. God has a plan of making us more like Christ, and he will not back off and say, she's not receiving this well. Oh, well, he's not that dad. You might have done your earthly dad that way. He's not. He's just going to come back around and come at this from another angle. If you despise it and you detest it, you will waste it and have to repeat it. This is part of the path of wisdom. And we wish it wasn't true, but think about it. The people who have had everything go well and have lived an incredibly charmed life, almost always they're very shallow people with very little wisdom and very little knowledge of God. Because here's how this works, folks. We almost never truly begin to trust God. I mean, all out, wide open, flat on your face, spread eagle, trust God until everything else we were trusting in blows up. Apart from suffering and trials, we just keep going our own way, thinking our own thoughts, saying we don't have time to get counsel from others, saying we don't have time to read God's word, but suffering has a way of changing all that. When you say, oh my goodness, I'm weak, I'm needy, I'm helpless, I'm broken, and you're poised for some incredible gains in wisdom. Oh, it's hard. It's hard. You know I love to read. I've read 30, 40 
50 books a year for probably 30 years now. That is not how God has done most of what he's done in me that you're probably grateful for. It's the trials that Vicky and I have gone through that I won't repeat what some of the worst of them were. But he didn't promise because Brad and Vicky were throwing themselves into ministry. Look, I'm serving you full time. Why would you? Because he wants to make us even more effective and more like Christ and to trust him more and to cling to his word. And that word trust, we've got the most famous verse in all of Proverbs right in our chapter, right? What? Verse five. Trust in the Lord with how much? That word trust in the Hebrew, get this. That word trust means to be stretched out fully and to throw yourself on your face completely dependent on someone else. We don't like that posture. We don't usually adopt that posture naturally. Only when we're brought to the end of ourselves. Now, you could just head on down a path of very bitter, but if in that moment you were to lean more into knowing God and know it's in the suffering and trials and pain that often his word just comes alive and lean more into the arms of your Christian friends. In that context, you have the possibility of some great gains in wisdom. But let me answer the question that might be buzzing in your head now. Because I know this isn't easy. It's not easy for me either. But I believe it with all my heart that this is what the Bible teaches. How do you know God loves you when you're in the midst of horrific suffering and trials as a child of God when you think, I'm the one trying to please you. I am the one giving away money. I am the one serving. I am connected in relationship How do you know he loves you? Because there's a temptation. The enemy will say, look, he doesn't love you. He's abandoned you. You've been orphaned. How do you know God loves you in the midst of suffering and trials? Go to Hebrews 12. Because I think it's interesting, the author in Hebrews 12 quotes from Proverbs 3. He knew his Old Testament. He quotes from Proverbs 3 that's talking to us about discipline and chastening and suffering and trials. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. In verses five and six, he says, a direct quote, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. But here's what the author in Hebrews does for us that we don't get in Proverbs, and it's critical. He tells us where to fix our eyes when you are in trials and suffering that make no sense to you. Look at verse two. He puts all this in the context of Jesus. Looking unto Jesus. And that is, look at me a minute. That is not a glance. Just like that word acknowledge didn't mean just tip your hat in that direction. That word looking in the Greek. There's a regular word in the Greek for look, blepo. It's not the one he used. The word he uses means to intentionally move from instead of looking at this, I need to look at this. I need to look at this. Some translation, that's why some translations say, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Christianity is the only religion who has a God who suffered for us and identifies with us. You may be in something that you say, I don't have a single earthly friend that gets it, that really understands what I'm going through. You have a savior who does. And he already solved your bigger problem of sin. And if he would do that so that you'll never suffer the wrath of God and punishment for your sins, if he would do that, he's with you now. He said, and you know he knows. He sympathizes, he empathizes, he gets it. A suffering savior who's with you, with you, with you. Well, if you're here today, As a believer, and your eyes have been darting everywhere but Jesus, come back to your Savior. And if you're here and you're not a believer, hear this great message. There is no other religion who has a God who doesn't just tell you what to do and see if you can get there and he'll accept you. He set the standard of perfection and holiness and keep all of the commandments. And then you say, but I can't. He says, you're right. And so I will send my son to do for you what you could never do for yourself. Hallelujah. What a savior. Oh God, thank you for your word that not only gives us wisdom, but gives us Jesus. Who he is and what he did. Oh God, make us wise as we submit to you in all our ways. Fill us with your spirit. Keep our eyes on Jesus. We pray in Jesus.